Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Poems, Prayers, and Promises, a look at a variety of psalms. The psalms are the prayers of God's people, encouraging and teaching us how to pray in our day. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. So yeah, if we can gather back in, those of you that are not uh, back in the sanctuary just yet, go ahead and make your way back in here. We're going to uh, get started. And we're going to continue in our summer teaching uh, series on uh, selected psalms. This psalm, uh, I'm excited to share with you guys. It's a short psalm, but it has meant a lot to me uh, this calendar year. Uh, for uh, and a little bit before that for uh, reasons that, that I'll get into uh, a little bit later on. Uh, but we are going to be in uh, Psalm number 142 this morning. Uh, so towards the back, there's only 150, so if you get all the way to the end, you're there. If you hit Proverbs, you just go back a couple pages and you'll be there. So if you've got your Bibles, that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, and this is... Uh, the type of psalm, you can see the title, You Are My Refuge, up here, uh, where uh, David makes this great uh, truth assertion. It's not a claim because it's a fact, but uh, he does this, and he does it in the middle of actually running for his life, believe it or not, uh, because he's writing this while being pursued by King Saul. Um, this is before Saul has died and before David has ascended to the throne uh, of Israel uh, that he writes this. Uh, and he pens this psalm uh, in something that's called a maskel. Uh, and this maskel is uh, something that comes from a Hebrew word to make wise or to make successful. Uh, it could mean general instruction uh, for the people of God, uh, it's typically referred to as a skillful poem or a contemplative poem. So the point of Maskell's basically is when people hear them, when people read them, think deeply about what is being said because there is deep, rich truth within here. There are 13 Maskell's in the anthology of the 150 psalms. We hear about the psalms of lament, and we hear about the psalms of praise, and we hear about the imprecatory psalms. Those are the ones where, you know, James and John calling down fire on their enemies would have loved the imprecatory psalms. That is not these. Uh, Maskels are for the people of God to hear, to digest, and to reflect deeply upon because there is great instruction um, and great wisdom in there. So we're going to go ahead and read Psalm 142. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Brothers and sisters, hear, digest, and reflect upon the word of the sovereign king of the universe, your refuge. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. 
Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. So as I mentioned, David wrote this when he was in the cave, uh, fleeing from Saul. Uh, some people think it's the events of 1 Samuel 22 when he was in the cave running from Saul, from Saul. Some people think it was 1 Samuel 24 where he was also in the cave running from Saul. Uh, it doesn't matter. The exact events that led to this are insignificant. Before you think like, wait, but facts matter and things like that, they do. But in Eastern literature... Getting all of the facts completely in nice, organized, tight, easy to understand things was never really the point. The point was, what do those facts point towards? The point is more important than how the facts are organized, whether they're included, whether they're omitted. The point here is that David feels like everything is closing in around him. He is hemmed in. And this is where he writes this Moscow. This, sometimes people think this is a piece that goes along with Psalm 57, and if you read that, it's also when David was in the cave, but, this, but that one is so, God, you're amazing, you're great, you're going to break the bones of my enemies, all these other types of things, and then, then this one, it's like, God, nobody's here. Is David on an emo- emotional roller coaster? Is he bipolar? Is he like high-low? What's going on here? That might be true, but we don't know, and it's not the point. The point with this is to model how to pray, and it's to model how to posture oneself before Almighty God, and it's to model how to view that Almighty God and the things that he will do. David does three things, and he, and he does all this modeling three ways. He portrays a problem, he portrays a solution, and he portrays a response. The problem is in the first four verses. If you look at verses one and two, you notice the repetition. There are parallel structures here. We've got them color-coded maybe for you, if you can make that out. But with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. And then I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. It's repetition, parallel repetition, followed by parallel repetition. In Eastern literature, this is done for emphasis. We see this in the New Testament where Jesus will say something and he say, and again I say, or when Paul says this, and he says, I say again, pay attention It's important. There's something there that we need to know. With my voice, David says, he cries out to the Lord and he pleads for mercy to the Lord. And this is important because what it does is it gives voice to his problems. 
a lot of times we tend to internalize our problems. This is not an internalized prayer. When we think of the Israelites, whether they're in the wilderness or whether they're in the time of the judges or whether they're in Egypt or any time during the times of the kings, when things weren't going right, oh gee, the enemy is upon us. Let me go walk into my prayer closet and pray silently to myself and maybe God will hear me. Is that what they did? No. They cried out to God. Wow. Hot mic. Sorry about that. But they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord. Audibly, often publicly, not for show, not for attention. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said, pray to your father in secret. But because they needed to cry out to God and to point others to cry out to God. When he cries out to God, when he prays freely and audibly in times of trouble, he pours out the complaint before him. The idea there is that these feelings have welled up. This is not a little trickle of a fountain that David is dumping out before God. It's a full bucket. And he's pouring that out. But the important thing is, where is he pouring that out? And to whom is he pouring that out? Is he running to his mighty men, or maybe if he meets up secretly with Jonathan or anything else and just being, woe is me, everything is terrible. He's not. He's pouring it out to God. There is nothing wrong, let me be clear, with telling somebody that you're struggling or you're having a rough time or anything like that. That can be good to bring those things to light. But the most important thing and the most important place that we can take that is to bring whatever plight we have to the God of the universe who fights for us. That's what David is doing in this passage. It's no secret that he's in trouble. But he's pouring it out to God who can do something about it. In verse 3, we see that in all of this situation, he pours all of this out. He's crying out to God. He's pleading to mercy for the Lord, pouring out his complaint. And God sees it. And he knows that God sees it because he says, when, your, when my spirit faints within me, you, God, know my way. Let me tell you, friends, this is a great encouragement in a very dire situation. David feels like everything is being uh, closing in around him. There's no escape. There's no way out. And yet God sees him. And God sees the situation. Reading this, digesting this, thinking deeply on this, what does that tell us? When we are in a dire situation, whether 
couple of grandbabies who are in the hospital. Whether you're awaiting a scary diagnosis, whether things just keep going wrong in your life, whether you're alone and have no friends, whether you're estranged from all of your family, whether you are hurt, broken, anxious, depressed, and just don't see a way out, and you feel like nobody sees you, God sees you. To drive home the point, David says, you see me, not only do you see me, do you see when my spirit faints within me, but you also see that in the path that I'm walking, they, the ambiguous, nebulous they, have hidden a trap for me. You know the trap is there, God. You know I'm walking towards that trap. You know what is coming, and you see it. Even before I do, you see it. Verse 4, I'm going to sit on for a minute. Uh, it says, look to the right and see. There is no one who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Now, in Hebrew, which this was originally written in, that idea of looking to the right, when we think of the right and the right hand, what do we typically think of? Anybody? Jesus? Or if somebody's seated at the right hand, that's the seat of power, right? Or of strength. In military ideas, that's what you're thinking. Looking to the right indicates the position of defense and the point of counterattack. The right hand is the one that has all the power and does everything. So David says, look to, look to the right and see. What's standing at David's right? Nobody. Nothing. None who takes notice of him. No refuge remains to him. No one to care for his soul. We don't have to look far to see this in other places in Scripture either. Mark uh, chapter 14, verse 50. This is when Jesus is betrayed in the garden and he's arrested and he's taken away. And his disciples, especially Simon Peter, who had said a couple chapters ago, I will go with you all the way to the end. Even if I have to die, I will die with you. Jesus gets arrested and they all left him and fled. Paul, at the very end of his life, the last books that he's penning to, uh, to Timothy. In 2 Timothy, I put a typo in the slide, that's on me. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, Paul is telling Timothy to, to send people, to send things, because Demas, loving this world, has deserted me. Crescens has gone off here. Titus is over here. I only have Luke with me. I'm essentially alone in this, in the time where I need comfort and company. I'm alone, Paul says. Jesus, of course, when he's on the cross in Psalm 22, cries out, what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 pointing forward to when Jesus cries that out on the cross. Uh, and then the witnesses in Revelation chapter 6, 10, they have gone and they are beneath the altar, figuratively speaking, in, uh, in this scene of heaven. And they're waiting there and they're waiting and there's no vengeance that's come 
for what's been done to them yet. And they say, how long, O Lord, do we have to wait before you will avenge this? They're in this sense of limbo. How sorrowful is it to feel alone without any help to come? Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10, which is speaking of the oppressors, it says, you know, this is where two are better than one. If one can help the other up, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. But woe to the one who falls, and there is no one to pick him up. The one who is oppressed, and there's nobody there to help. Woe to that person. This is what David is portraying in Psalm 142. Do we ever feel like this? My 11-year-old son. Quiet kid, great, good kid, smart, sharp as a tack. He's going to be the guy when he grows up that's wandering around the streets of New York City in a t-shirt that says free hugs. That's Derek. Anybody who's ever run up to Derek knows that. Hi, can I give you a hug? Right? When he's in first grade, so shortly after we moved here to Maryland, uh, the teachers check in on them periodically, and they notice that he's kind of just doing his own thing, and sometimes he'll, he'll try to play with his friends and everything like that, and they get to, I don't remember if it was talking or if it was like a written report or something like that, but the gist of it was they were trying to get to the root of if, is there something there that we need to address as educators and as you know, adults to make sure that he's integrating and everything there. And his response just cut my wife and I just right through the heart because he basically just said, Nobody realizes me. I don't, I mean, that's articulated the best way a six-year-old can articulate it. But how sorrowful it is to feel like you're all alone in the world. Now, he's gone on and he's made several really good friends during his time, you know, his five-year run in one place, which... I mean, it's the longest that we've ever lived in one place. But that idea of just that unspoken, like unable to articulate it very well, sorrow of not being noticed, of not feeling like anybody's there for you. We have those feelings. If we admit, if we get really deep down in the core of our being and we're honest with ourselves, everybody feels that on some level. Everybody has a situation where you're in an intense trial or loneliness or anything like that. And let me tell you, that should be the expected experience, especially for the people of God. Happened to David. Happened to Moses. Happened to Elijah. Talked about that a couple weeks ago in another psalm. I'm, I alone have been left. Happened to Paul, happened to all of the disciples, happened to Jesus. If Jesus didn't get out of that, what makes us think that we're going to be exempted from 
encountering that in our own lives. It is the normal and expected experience for the people of God. However, in the midst of those deep trials, those deep feelings of loneliness, of abandonment, of whatever it is, just as the expected reaction or the expected experience should be to have those feelings and experience uh, those situations, the default reaction of the people of God should be to take those to the Lord. David shows us in verses 5 and 6 how to do that. He goes on in verse 5 and he says, I cry to you, O Lord, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. David does not sugarcoat the situation that he's in any more than he sugarcoated the situation he was in when I preached a few, a few weeks ago on Psalm 51. David is not one to sugarcoat the things uh, that he's dealing with. He acknowledges the situation uh, for what it is. He brings it to light, doesn't try to bury it or anything like that. He declares God just after he had said, there is no refuge for me. Nobody's here. Nobody cares for my soul. He turns around and he says, I cry out to God, you are my refuge. Because when nobody else sees, nobody else notices, nobody else cares, he acknowledges that God sees him. God is his refuge. God is his portion in the land of the living. So when everything else is going wrong and sideways and is just completely messed up, that's life, right? Everybody with me? God is the refuge. God is his portion in the land of the living, which in uh, sometimes is uh, in rabbinic and Levitical terms is the, the nation of Israel. But more broadly, it just speaks to the state of being alive. When, when Anne, sometimes, very, very rarely, when she sleeps in, and she sleeps in until you know, 10 or 11 on a Saturday, doesn't happen very often, but it does happen, and she wakes up, welcome to the land of the living, right? That's what it's talking about. It's, you are among the people, you're not dead somewhere, you're either alive or you're not. And so if you're alive, which all of us here are alive, we are in the land of the living. And while we are in the land of the living, God is our portion. When we take those things to God and acknowledge him as our refuge and our portion, regardless of the circumstance, that is where blessing begins. Charles Spurgeon, dead theologian, for those of you who don't know, and being in seminary, I get to read a lot of dead theologians, famous preacher um, in Britain said it this way. He said, anything which leads us to cry unto God is a blessing to us. There's no exemptions, there's no caveats, there's no qualifiers, it's just anything. And so if we recognize in those situations that God is our portion and we cry out to him, we are blessed. 
if we look at David's life, it's really hard to see that, especially in this situation. If we remember anything about the narrative in, in, uh, first, in first Samuel, this is first Samuel. Uh, if we remember anything about that narrative, David has fought off wild animals as a shepherd, been chosen by God to take over for Saul, even after his father and all of his brothers tried to hide him out in the field and get one of the other eight brothers to be the anointed king of Israel. He became a famous warrior in Saul's ranks to the point that Saul became jealous because when, when, people rolled, when they rolled by, everybody was singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands, right? Jonathan, Saul's son, whom David loved more than a brother, is still alive when this is being penned. But when the king rages, we might say if we took Psalm 2, the nations, at least one nation, is raging against the man after God's own heart. Everybody else falls in line. And David is alone. But despite this, he recognizes that he has a deliverer that is bigger than all of those. Scott talked about how, how big God is. God's bigger than all of the other things. All the persecutors, all the enemies, everything that's bringing David low, deliver me, God. Going to date myself a little bit here. Some of you will be right there with me and be like, oh, David, why did you do that? Rich Mullins wrote, um, wrote this song, and it's a great narrative story. Talks about, you know, Joseph taking his wife and child, and they go off to Africa to escape the rage of a deadly king. And there along the banks of the Nile, Jesus listened to the song that the captive Hebrew children used to sing. Some of you guys can, can sing with me, right? My deliverer is coming. My deliverer is standing by. And in the second chorus, it says, I will never doubt his promise, though I doubt my heart and I doubt my eyes. David, in his heart of hearts, knows that he has a deliverer. How does he know that he has a deliverer and that this deliverer is going to come through? Let's put him before Saul when he goes off to fight Goliath and, and Saul looks at David and tries to outfit him in all the military gear and David's like, this is way too big and way too heavy and it does not work because I'm, an, I'm, I'm more of an agile range fighter. I'm not a melee, up-close combat fighter. And Saul says, that guy's going to rip you apart. And David turns to him and says, the God who delivered me from the lion and the bear when I was out tending sheep will deliver me from this guy. And he'll give me his head. And so when he experiences that, he knows that God has delivered him and given him everything that he will need. This is an example of what James Chapter 1, verse 6, speaking about wisdom. This is an example of what James 1, 6 says of asking in faith and never doubting. 
because the man who doubts is unstable and shouldn't receive anything from the Lord. He's unstable in all of his ways. David is not doubting. Even though he has all of these reasons that he could doubt. He says, deliver me, Lord. We have all of these things that we can look at that can cause us to doubt as well. We have our individual trials, family situations, very personal matters. We have collective trials where the whole people of God in a given place or a certain people group, insert people group here, can be negatively affected, oppressed, under duress, anything like that. Individual trials, individual enemies, collective trials, collective enemies. We have plenty of reasons to doubt, but let us, even though those enemies may be too strong, look to the deliverer who is stronger than our enemies could ever hope to be. David calls in this final part, which is going to show his response, calls out finally for this delivery in verse 7. Bring me out of prison so that I may give thanks to your name. Wait, what's he talking about there? He's not under arrest. He's an enemy of the state, but he's not under arrest. He is fleeing from the cave. So there is an element, a... Uh, a physical, temporal element to this deliverance that he's talking about. But I think he's looking forward. I think he's looking forward to being brought out of prison. The very same prison that you and I, if we are the people of God, once were. And where billions of people today live. I believe that David is asking for direct deliverance from persecution by Saul, but I also believe that he is asking his deliverer to do the ultimate deliverance, which is to bring Messiah to save his people from their sins and to call people to himself. What he's asking for is something to praise the name of God, which, by the way, you can only do by the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, nobody can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, 1 John 4, 2, is of God. Those are things that people will only do if they are empowered by God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Clearly talking about saved people. David also acknowledges in this situation he's not the only righteous one there. He says, the righteous will surround me in that day for you will deal bountifully with me. We referenced Elijah earlier and the 7,000 men who had not bent the knee. Elijah thought he was all alone. I'm convinced David knew he wasn't. 
He knew all along he would not be alone, even if he felt alone in that moment. He was not and would not ever again be alone. Because this here, the righteous will surround me, is speaking of God's chosen people. So we have a uh, problem that anybody can insert a problem into that situation. We have a solution. Anybody can bring that situation to God. And we have this praise that points, this response that points toward the joy of God's ultimate deliverance and maybe some temporal deliverance at the same time. So we'll go ahead and apply the word and then we will get to uh, the table. Couple simple questions here. Deep, I say that tongue in cheek, deep questions to digest and think about. Remember, that's the point of a mascal, is to digest and think deeply upon it. What does this psalm instruct me about life's circumstances? That's not, a, that's not an, a statement to insert ourselves into the passage as such. That's bad Bible study. But these types of things should make us think. Are there situations where I can read this and say, yep, I feel like I've got a situation that kind of goes right with this right now? Again, most, if not all of us, will be able to feel that. What do the strong feelings in the first half of this psalm stir in my experiences? Does it call anything to memory? Does it call a, a situation that I'm in or that I have been in that I either need to presently call out to God or previously I did call out to God and I can see on the other side the things that he did? So that's the first question. Second question, what does this psalm instruct me about how God cares for me? Jesus told his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. So Jesus instructed that uh, Stuff is going to happen. We don't know what that stuff is going to look like, but it's going to be trouble. It's going to feel like trouble. But that we can take heart because Jesus has overcome all of that. Paul wrote, you know, the sufferings of this world, they aren't even worthy of being in the same sentence as the glory that's going to be revealed later on. God cares for us in such a way. But I also believe that God cares for us in that moment when maybe we can't think that far ahead because all we can see is the circumstances. When Brett asked us to pick these psalms, uh, I knew immediately I wanted to preach Psalm 51. It's one of my favorite psalms. And then I was, as I had been reading, Psalm 142 has also become one of my favorite psalms because it encapsulated everything that I was feeling 
And I was afraid my wife was going to die. And I couldn't see past that. But I knew, reading it, that God saw me there. And that even if it was his will to take her, which, glory to God, he's not done with her yet. But even if that was the plan, that I would be delivered. I already had been. Anything else is a bonus and better than I deserve. So what does this psalm instruct me about how God cares for me? And finally, what does this psalm instruct me about praising God for what he has done and what he will do? There is, when we get on the other side of these situations, we can look back and we can see all the things that God has done. And then we still get to look forward and, and think about the things that God's going still to do. That's worth getting up in the morning, right? we can think about the things even yet ahead or look back and think about the things that have already been done. That is reason for as long as we have breath to praise the name of our God. I think about uh, a song, we've sung it here sometimes, you know, standing on this mountaintop and you know, just how far we've come knowing that for every step you were with us, right? Kneeling on this battleground, seeing just how much you've done. Every victory was your power in us and all this stuff. Scars and struggles on the way, but with joy our hearts will say, never once did we ever walk alone. God has delivered us, God will deliver us. It may not be from the physical, temporal thing that we're dealing with. Paul asked for that three times, and God said no. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, right? That is the important thing. Friends, I want to leave you with this statement before we come to the table. This is from Corey Ten Boom. For those of you who don't know her story, um, her family was in the Netherlands hiding Jews during World War II. Um, and eventually she ended up in the camps um, because they were found out or they were betrayed or I don't remember exactly how it goes. But the point was she and her family ended up in the camps. She survived. Some of her family did not. And she comes out after all this, and she was able to actually forgive one of the men in the camps and see him and, and all of these things. And she comes at it from this posture, though. She said, you may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. 
All we have is Christ, right? There's another song we sing about that. Jesus is our life, and it's because he delivered us as we come to the table of deliverance. You guys can pull uh, the packets out and start to get that ready. We want to remember that no matter how the week has treated us, no matter how life is uh, lifting us up or beating us down, more often than not, it's beating us down than lifting us up because that's how life works. No matter how that is going, we have a deliverer. We have already been delivered, but he is waiting, standing by to come again. And when we take this meal, we proclaim in the core of our being that we believe that our deliverer has rescued us and that he is coming again. So you do not have to be a member of Bay Ridge Christian Church to partake in, in the table this morning. Um, if you are a believer, if you believe everything that I've said this morning, if you believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that he died for our deliverance, and that he was raised for our salvation, please partake with us. If you're not a believer and you don't believe that, just go ahead. You can observe, but I would, I would suggest sitting this out and talking to an elder afterwards uh, about this because it's the most important conversation and thought that you'll ever have. But friends, let us prepare to partake from the table of deliverance. For what I received from the Lord, I now pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, as we prepare to take the bread, we remember that we have circumstances in life where we feel unseen. But we can know because you have called us to yourself as your people and you have redeemed us from our sins and restored us to right relationship with you through your son that we can never say that we are alone. Lord, we thank you for that ultimate deliverance that you gave us. And we look forward with anticipation to all of the things that you are going to do uh, in our lives, both now and in the hereafter. Brothers and sisters, the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. Lord Jesus, you told your disciples that in the world they would have trouble. 
but that they could be of good cheer because you have overcome the world. Lord, many of us have no shortage of trouble and all of us have experienced some trouble in life. But because you came, you bled, you died, and you rose, we can be of good cheer because you have overcome the world. Brothers and sisters, the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. Spirit of God, we ask that you would pour yourself out upon us anew this morning. We thank you that you are the seal, the down payment on our inheritance. One for us, by Christ and through Christ. And as we walk the rest of this life, however long you grant us on this earth, may we, whether in times of trouble or times of joy, with every breath that's in us, praise your name for your goodness, for your deliverance, and for the things that you still have yet to do to which we can look forward. We ask these things for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. Our God is great and greatly to be praised. Amen. Stand with me. Let's read Psalm 50, uh, 150, sorry, for our benediction. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in the mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Friends, we are, no matter where we find ourselves, immeasurably and abundantly blessed. Go forward and share that blessing with those you come across this week. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.